thanks for tuning in once again to Sound Perspective. You know the drill. I say this every uh, bloody intro, but my name's Alfie Faber. I'm a filmmaker and podcaster here in the beautiful city of Sydney, Australia. And I just love movies, TV, screen media, the juxtaposition of sight and sound. How fun. I started off in sound design and now I'm letting my tentacles slither all over the filmmaking process, meanwhile chatting to uh, crew and directors and editors, sound designers, all kinds of people about uh, this passion of mine. Now, today's interviewee is a real special one. It's about a feature film made by some friends of mine that I myself did a bit of sound recording for. And I am 100% being honest, when I say that uh, I'm I, me working on this had no impact on my decision to do this episode. Um, if you ever wondered why I'm so sporadic and inconsistent with this podcast, it's because I don't really bother chatting to people unless I'm really passionate about the work they do. Because I don't make any money off this and I need to make sure I have enough time for my filmmaking. Um, there's a lot of pressure as a content creator to be consistent and regular in order to stay on top of the algorithm. That's just, it's just how like the internet and podcasting works these days. It's really annoying. And I think that that mindset creates a lot of really shit content where people just uh, feel they have to meet quotas. Um, And it's not the way I like working. So when I say that I loved this film, I mean it because I wouldn't have bothered doing an episode if I didn't like it. But also, uh, I think the sound on it is pretty good. Well, in the scenes that I did. I only did like a week on it. Um, But overall, sound is great. Big shout out to John Tompkins, the other sound recordist on it, who put in a lot more time than I did. And call blimey, did he do a good job. Um, today I'm chatting with Dane McCusker, a director in Sydney, and uh, we're chatting about his recent film, The Big Dog. It's a drama slash comedy about the phenomenon of thindom. Uh, for an audience who might not know about that, it's uh, short for financial domination. Um, it's a bit of a wacky fetish in which uh, people get aroused by having someone else control their finances which is pretty mm, interesting. Um, So the film follows Richard Morgan, a 53-year-old stockbroker, suburban family man, and secret Findom addict. On the morning of his son's graduation party, he discovers that his dominatrix has cleaned out all of his bank accounts, including the money for his uh, son's graduation present, a new car. Now, over the course of one Saturday, he must try and recover $76,000 without his wife discovering his secret life. But as all of his closest relationships go down in flames, he slowly has to confront the toxic manhood that has led him down this path. That's a wonderful synopsis uh, from the creators of this film. Um, The Big Dog is hilarious. It's heartbreaking. It's a perfect dramedy. I think a lot of people would have approached a film about this topic in a fairly distasteful, exploitative manner. But Dane manages to bring a huge amount of nuance to the topic, exploring the um, ethical complexity of sex work, uh, class dynamics, 
and the sacrifices that women are often pressured to make when raising a family. It's a really thematically dense film and his script was brilliant. Uh, The Big Dog is just about to start its theatrical release in Australia and I couldn't recommend it highly enough. I'm putting a link in the show notes to where you'll be able to catch it. It'll be coming out 9th of November, which is tomorrow. Go get those tickets now, everyone. Um, And remember to follow me on Insta and Letterboxd. Uh, That's at Alfie Faber on both. And I will put in the show notes uh, some info on where you can get tickets for the big dog, where it will be playing, etc. But now over to Dane. Um, Dane McCusker, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Um, well, I guess I like to start by asking, like, um, what was uh, the start of film for you? How did you get into uh, this kind of thing? Um, so it started really, really young for me. Um, I got a copy of Terminator 2 um, when I was about six years old on VHS. Um, and I was obsessed with it. <laughs> I just, I used to take it with me everywhere and just like make people watch it. And just, I watched it until, yeah, that that cassette stopped working basically. Mm. Um, what, oh, quick, quick interruption. What are your thoughts on the first one? Is, is the second your favorite? Well, I saw the second one first. Ah. And so I think it just has a, a place in my heart. And also, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It, it seems like weirdly to say it seems more kid friendly because it's like less like horror influence yeah. maybe. And it yeah. has a kid in it. So yeah. I think it really does appeal to to younger people. But yeah, it was mm-hmm. just something about it. It was like a, the right mix of things at the right time. And it just really hooked me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just became obsessed with everything cinema after that and, and kind of knew that's what I wanted to do eventually. Mm. And you grew up in Bathurst, right? Yep. Which for international listeners is a kind of smaller town, a couple of um, hours outside of Sydney. Was that like um, an easy place to be an artist or was there a, is there, I'm sure there's a cinema there? There is, yes. Yeah, yeah. there was uh, one, a one, one screen cinema when I was growing up um, and then they kind of built a multiplex called the Metro 5 maybe when I was like 10 or 11 years old. Mm. Um, but I, like my dad was a musician um, and so kind of there was a lot of arts around in the house um, and Ooh. stuff like that. And my mom was very, very supportive. Um, and like, yeah, I think, it, you know, the ta- the culture of the town is very like motorsport focused and, you know, stuff like that. But there is also a university there. Mm. Um, and we were like, my dad was friends with, um, there was a course there that was run that was like theater media. Mm. Uh, and my dad was friends with the guy who ran that. So I kind of was around that a little bit. And like he used to let me like borrow the university's equipment to shoot stuff when I was a kid. Oh, and like awesome. I yeah. raided the um, the university library a lot just to get like books about cinema. And, yeah. Like, yeah. Just like, you know, a stack of 10 books you know, as a nine-year-old just taking out of this university library to like study under the covers. Like, yeah. So there was, there was a round, there was a vein there of something that I could tap into. Um, but, you know, I knew pretty quickly that to do a film, I was going to have to leave Bathurst. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And uh, did you, you, so as we'll talk about later, you made this film as part of your master's program at AFTERS, but was were you studying film before that? So this was the third time that I'd gone through um, the school, uh, through AFTERS. Mm. Um, I moved in 2009 from Bathurst to Sydney to do the first um, degree that I did there, which was like a foundation diploma, I think it was called. Um, and it was basically just like a year 
long course that was like a bit of everything. It was like, you know, learn to operate camera, record sound, edit, like it was not really specialized um, in any way. Um, and then I kind of came out of that and, and went into post-production initially and was, was doing editing work uh, just as a freelancer for a while. Um, and then I went back and did a directing course there, a grad cert in directing. Um, and then, yeah, went back a third time, um, pretty strategically to, to kind of do, do a, do a feature, get a feature up basically. Yeah. 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 Um, well, before we talk about the big dog, I just wanted to briefly mention a couple of your shorts that you made before Mm -hmm. that, um, which I rewatched in the past couple of days, um, and I really enjoyed, uh, they're on Dane's Vimeo, which I'll put a link to in the show notes if anyone's interested. Um, what 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 do you see as them kind of having in common with the big dog? Or what's the thread in your in your filmmaking career towards that, towards the big dog? Yeah, I, I, it, it's interesting because a lot of this stuff um, I only kind of, realized retrospectively. I mean, like definitely there were similarities at the time of writing all three of these, the two shorts that kind of came before it and the big dog. Um, But it wasn't something that I was like really cognizant of saying like, I want to, you know, thread this on the same kind of thematic territory. It just, all of that stuff was in the ether when I was writing all three of them. And so it just kind of seeped into it. And, you know, I did know that there were continuities thematically between all of them, but it wasn't something that was by design necessarily. Um, and, and even just beyond the thematics of it, there are similarities and continuities looking back through the three of them, um, you know, outside of that as well. Like even the, the ending to all three are really similar. Um, and I didn't notice mm-hmm. until, you know, after the fact, kind of looking back at all three of them and being like, wow, like even the closing shots are pretty similar, like where the yeah. characters are. Yeah. So yeah, it was something that was was really interesting to me to notice after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something I like about uh, all of them or a common thread is that they're often about um, kind of gender relations and often misogyny. And do you, do you know like why that was something that you were drawn to exploring? I think the f- when when I wrote Angelfish, the first short, um, it, not the first short I did, but the first kind of short in this like thematic territory, it was around um, when the Me Too movement was really kicking off. And so the, there was a lot of public discourse around these kind of themes. Um, and so it was just really present in my mind. And I think, you know, as you kind of have to look at who you are in the world and what your privileges are and what stories are yours to tell. And, and this was thematic territory that you know, I, I could comment on a lot about the position of men and, and like a lot of, um, you know, the kind of powers that they take for granted and how they exploit them. Um, I thought that was something that was interesting that I had something to say about and could, could see in my own life and, and, you know, use that to, to make art out of, and hopefully, um, you know, comment on it in a way that, that, that furthers that conversation a little bit. Mm. Well, I, I just want to say about Angelfish as well, that I think it's, I often don't like, like shorts that are under six minutes or so. Yeah. I think either if they're that length, I usually just want them to be something like backpedaled by Danny Pierce, where it's something very tonal and like artistically motivated. But um, Angelfish had a really amazing 
uh, story to it, had very kind of defined characters for something so short. I just wanted, I just thought that was really cool. So on to talking about the big dog. Do you want to run me through like how that got started and um, how that came to be? Yeah, yeah. So I I had been making shorts for a while and I was really trying to get a feature off the ground. I really was like I had a whole bunch of scripts kind of sitting around that that I wanted to make um, and I was just having trouble getting money, getting, you know, the resources necessary to, to launch a feature. Um, and I saw... Uh, a few years ahead of me, um, sequin in a blue room that came out of the the master's degree um, at Arthur's. Which I'll just interrupt you. I uh, I did an interview with them as well way back like three years ago or something. Yeah, I think. yeah. And and that was just a really impressive you know feature that came out of um, out of this degree. And I thought, you know, having had gone through the school already, I kind of knew the systems a little bit there and and what I might be able to do within that environment. So it just felt like. Um, a way, a pathway to to getting something up that I was having difficulty doing on my own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, had you like, so you would have started your degree in like 2020 or something? Yep. So, yeah. it was right like the first like month of the course, COVID hit. Um, <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. yeah. And so, things had to be, um, yeah, kind of rearranged really quickly in the course. And there was a lot of um, reshuffling of just how the course was run because um, yeah. we went straight into lockdown basically. Mm. Um, and the way the course is supposed to be structured, it's like you make you know, your capstone project, which is like the the um, practical side of it. And then alongside that, you're supposed to be doing all this kind of theoretical components and writing an exegesis and a research paper that goes along with whatever you're making. Um, and when, when COVID happened and we had to lock down, they pushed all of the like screen study stuff into the first oh, semester man. of the course. So it was just like in lockdown, riding the big dog and just doing this like really heavy, like academic screen study stuff, <laughs> um, which, you know, I kind of liked to be honest, um, yeah. but yeah, it was, it was interesting. Yeah. yeah. So had, you, you didn't have a script when you came into the course? So I had a couple um, that I wanted to make, but once I got to afters, I knew that none of them were going to be feasible um, just with right. the constraints that I was going to have. Um, right. So you had several feature scripts. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Cool. Um, because I, you know, alongside doing all the shorts, I'd been developing longer form stuff that I've been trying to get up over the years, but it was just really hard. Mm. Um, and something actually that I encountered a lot was like angelfish, you know, did pretty well. Like I traveled internationally with it and, you know, it became a female staff pick and a few other things. It was nominated for an ADG award, but even that, like going into meetings, say off the back of that, it was always like, oh, you're expanding this into a feature. Like this is a right. concept and it yeah. wasn't necessarily anything that I had more to say on that. That kind of was just a thing that existed. And mm. I had other projects that weren't related, but yeah. people had a hard time grasping that, I think, or like, yeah. you know, um, so yeah, going back then, um, at the beginning of the course, I had things that I had been developing, um, but I realized none of them were going to work. And so just randomly in like the first couple of weeks of the course, I was just scrolling through Instagram mm. and I saw an Instagram reel that was the first scene of the movie. It was like the first line of the movie, The Big Dog. Like really? Verbatim. Right. Yeah. It was this guy like hiding in his car, like on a Findom call. Um, and I saw it and it was just one of those things that instantly... I, I knew that there was a story there that I could tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's really cool. It is like it it is a topic pretty uh, ripe for 
thematic exploration, I guess you could say. One of the first things that popped into my head when I was watching the film is how much it is about um, people who can't express how they feel through their words. So they express it through love, uh, through things, yep. through money. Yep. And it's this really interesting exploration of class. And I thought, is this, is this someone you know? Is <laughs> Look, I mean, there are people that I've encountered over my life. Like, personally, I'm not from that world at all. Yeah. Um, but I have met people, especially, I mean, there were there were bosses that I've had that have been kind of that person maybe yeah. over the years um, and other people that I've encountered. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the whole class thing came, you know, because because I'd been looking at masculinity and redefining that and how that kind of fits into mo the modern world. Um, then when I thought about Findom through that lens, it also brought in money in a way that I hadn't really looked at before. Um, and it's just such an interesting fetish because it is really about being, you know, expressing love through money or mm. expressing, you know, yeah, some kind of amorous feelings through wealth. Um, and, you know, it's only accessible to people that are insanely wealthy, really. And yeah, there was just a lot that I could look in that that particular fetish that was of interest to me. And, and, and it touched on so many kind of interesting areas that I could take and thread a story through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I hope that this uh, doesn't uh, sound like an insult or anything but i know that i know as someone who is on set i know the logistical difficulties that go into making a low budget feature and the kind of choices that you have to make um when doing that so what 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 were some of the biggest challenges of doing something low budget like that and how do you how do you think they defined your creative process yeah well i think the big one was contained locations and contain cast. I think just eliminating, um, you know, like any kind of company moves that, that the crew had to do was it was a big time and money saver. Um, and just knowing that it had to be basically in one location um, over one day, I think designing that into kind of the writing of the script and, and making the limitations feel organic to the story was a big part of it. Um, because and, and something that kind of stuck out about this idea when it struck me was that having it be contained and limited to a day and one location was actually going to help it um, mm. you know, dramatically because it just yeah. adds another level of pressure. It's like, it did. It was very tense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, like there were other smaller kind of decisions and like we had to um, design, you know, a lot of the screen language really kind of thoroughly before we stepped on set so that we just mm. knew every day exactly what we were going to shoot and, and, you know, um, and, and having that feel like it's, it's an organic part of the storytelling, but also just know that there wasn't a lot of room in my process for experimentation or anything on the day, really, depending mm. on the scene, like some scenes we scheduled you know, with more time to to kind of find things on the day. Um, but most of the time we had to really rigorously just kind of have everything super well planned and, and thought out in advance. Mm. Yeah, well, I like something that I kind of wanted to communicate to anyone listening to this is that like I'm, I was kind of only really conscious or thinking about how it was this like one location contained smaller film because I worked on it. 
But when like watching it, it has such breadth to it. You use the location in such a creative way. It doesn't at all feel like it was constrained. And in many ways, I feel like it really, that kind of tightness worked to your advantage. Like I really loved the, um, the, the coverage of it and the way you shot it. it. I felt like it was really economical and there were a lot of kind of uh, long takes in wide shots that were um, that had like phenomenal blocking and composition of these wide shots and just let the scene play out really nicely. So was that part of like creating the visual language like you talked about? Yeah. And I think that was kind of, we, we set some parameters like me and uh, Oliver, Oliver, the cinematographer, um, about how we were going to cover certain scenes. And the, the overarching idea was like, we really wanted to start off the, the camera and editing style in a really kind of observational austere way and, and play a lot, a lot out in kind of deep focus wides, like you were saying. Um, and the idea there was then, you know, as the character's losing control and you're kind of sucked into the vortex of his life over this day, the camera style and the editing style would kind of break down a little bit and it would get a bit more immediate and kinetic and handheld. And, you know, by the end of the movie, it is a bit more frantic and 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 kind of energetic than, than it is at the beginning. Mm, mm. It was a really nice kind of descent into madness, which I appreciated. I thought this was one of the best examples of kind of genre blend dramedy that I've seen in a really long time, um, which is a difficult thing to do. What were um, what were some of your like inspirations for achieving that balance? Yeah, I mean, in in Australia, like we have a history of comedy that isn't that's just really comedic. It's very broad comedy. Um, and that was something that I wasn't particularly interested in doing. Um, and you know, just blending drama and comedy in a way that, that the dramatic stuff feels more funny and the comedic stuff feels more dramatic. Was That's kind a of, great way of putting it. was yeah. kind of what I liked. And, mm. and you know, I think there was a lot of um, sifting through influences in the writing stage. Like I looked a lot to um, like 90s American independent stuff like Todd Solondz, um and Alexander Payne and a few people like that um, or, or kind of European stuff like uh, Ruben Osland was another one, just oh, kind of yeah. you know, the cinema of discomfort in a yeah. way and making dramatic stuff kind of funny and and yeah. And yeah. Um, so that, that, that was part of it. And then I think the other part was really in the casting and finding the right cast that could deliver mm. that tone mm. um, because it is so, you know, performance focused. Um, just having the right people that could really understand that and bring out you know, funny kind of timings in the serious stuff and, and, and work within that and, and kind of, yeah, sell, sell the tone, which was a big part of casting it. And I think all of the cast did an absolutely phenomenal job at that. Mm. Do you have any tips for people listening on like when you identify something that you're going to need in the casting, how you can see that in, in the actors that you're, you're, you're running through the casting with? Yeah, look, I think I think a big thing is acting's a really interesting one because everyone has a different kind of opinion on it and when they see a performance like um about shades of emotion in it because I think it's just how human beings see other human beings like you always see different shades of, you know, um you know, behavior and and things in a performance. Um so it's about just having conversations with all your key collaborators, especially like say if you get a tape, um an actor to put something down on tape, 
just just talk to other people and see if they're seeing the same thing that you're seeing in it and just mm-hmm. have those conversations and and get really kind of um you know specific about it and then you know because sometimes you 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 might just see something that triggers you know a memory of yours that you project onto a performance that may yeah. not necessarily work for other people mm. um so i think talking to your casting agent talking to your producers talking to everyone and just really like discussing what you like about a tape and a performer and 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 you know and also then once you get to the audition stage talking to the the actor about it and just you know mm. i think that's a, a, an interesting way to kind of find that stuff yeah yeah well you talked about like uh, I didn't know the American guys you mentioned, but Ruben Osland and your inspirations for that kind of genre blending. But were there any other inspirations that were big for you for this one? Um, there were there were a few kind of weird ones, like w- what I was saying before about the first part of the film being really kind of observational and austere. Like we looked a lot at uh, Michael Haneke and the way he shoots, mm. um, which you know you wouldn't necessarily associate with like a comedy, mm. um, but it was really informative for us just in in blocking and and shooting some of those kind of more static wide you know oneers basically that you kind of cover a scene in. Um, he was really good for that and just getting the right feeling of like a weirdly controlled, you know, look at this family and how they function. Mm, mm. I'd love to talk for a bit about the music because it was phenomenal. Um, Sam Weiss, he was also in the Masters, was he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he was a Masters student um, and he came on really early in the process. Mm. Um, And there was a lot of, I mean, we, yeah, we kind of started just talking about, um, just influences and like, you know, resonances and just passing things back and forward and being like, mm-hmm. oh, what about this? Or what about this? Just to kind of slowly shape a, a sound and a language that we could talk about music between us and, and what we liked and what we kind of wanted to bring out. Um, but yeah, he did an incredible, incredible job. Um, and, a, and I think a big thing about it was we wanted the music always to be really textural and, and really kind of abrasive feeling. Mm. Um, and, you know, he used a lot of really close mic strings and, and kind of alternate techniques of playing things like a lot of, um, you know, plucking and things like that with, with, you know, the combination of that and, and, um, like close miking them basically to get yeah. all the really kind of ugly string timbres and yeah. stuff out. Well, that's one of the things I was going to bring up is just how like how textural and what a diverse range of uh, tonality you got with. Was that a string quartet? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it was um, a string quartet. I think there was a, a bigger ensemble as well um, that was mm-hmm. recorded and then also mixing that with some um, samples and things. Cause I think, you know, it was also about how, how we could get such a big orchestral sound, um, you know, on, on a small budget basically, yeah. um, which took quite a long time to get. And yeah, again, he did a phenomenal job with, you know, just really getting all those musicians and, and finding that and organizing that and, and being able to pull that off. It was, yeah, a really mean feat. Mm. And um, what were some of those, like, are you a big one for inspiration playlists? Yeah, we did. We had a collaborative playlist. I mean, it's a long time ago now, so I can't remember exactly what was on it. Um, But yeah, there was a few things. I mean, for the later, bigger kind of orchestral stuff, I think there was some tracks on the Barry Lyndon soundtrack. I mean, they're all existing pieces of music, but I think Mm. there was a few things in that that we kind of shared. Um, But also, there was a lot more music in the final film than was designed to be there. Like, I think in the edit... We'd found, because similarly with um, 
with the way it was shot in a really spare way that kind of devolves into this crazy kind of kinetic thing. We also wanted to do a lot less music in the beginning and then kind of bring that in and amp it up as the story went along. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the edit, uh, my editor, Jared and I, we were kind of cutting things. And then we just noticed that like, if we just dropped a little bit of temp in here, like it, the, the cut would just drink it up and we mm. could put more in and more and it just kept actually making it a lot better. Right. Um, so we, yeah, we kind of just clued into that. And then, you know, Sam was very happy every time we said more music, he was like, great, <laughs> great. Cause I think, um, I think it's quite like a modern sensibility to have less music. I think people are really like um, yeah. apprehensive about overusing music. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, every time we went back to Sam, we're like, yeah, we've got, Maybe another cue we want you to write. He was like, yes. Yeah. Well, I don't think, um, I don't, I really don't think any of the music in the film was, I don't know if there's a term for it, but when people use music to try and elevate something that isn't really there, that they wish there was yeah. there. But I, I, I think you, there wasn't any of that in this film. It was, it was just all kind of the, bringing stuff up that was already there, um, which I loved. So I'd then like to chat about your collaboration with Jonathan Mendeluccio, who also a master's student. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, And so what was your approach when doing sound design on something that's very kind of naturalistic and subtle and drama focused like this? Um, Yeah, so I had a lot of conversations with um, Jonathan, similarly to the ones um, that I had with Sam about um, just the textural nature of what we were trying to do and how we could bring out, you know, anxiety with sound and music. I think they were both kind of linked in that way. Um, And we had a lot of conversations about how heightened or natural it was going to be. And we really decided quite early on that we didn't want to use a lot of big like uh, non-diegetic sounds and sound design moments necessarily. We just wanted to make the diegetic sounds as textural and anxiety producing as possible. Mm. Um, And so there were a few things that were already in the script, like the barking dog that runs through the movie and stuff like that, that we knew that we could kind of lean on. But it was then just about like how, how through the foley and the detail of a scene are we going to like elevate, you know, anxiety and make it more abrasive and lots of little sounds that we found that we could just amplify a bit that didn't didn't break the kind of grounded naturalism of the movie but just made it feel um you know more anxiety inducing and, and things like the the egg timer it just always being yeah, on you know in yeah. the kitchen and just little things like that that when you cut back to a space just using the sounds that exist in that space to kind of yeah make you feel on edge and a bit uncomfortable mm, mm. Um, and then uh, looking at like the credits, I saw that uh, Jonathan was the supervising sound editor and you ended up getting uh, Peter Purcell as re-recording mixer, mm-hmm. who is um, very experienced from what I can see, but I've never met him myself. Um, was What was it like to work with someone of that level of experience? Yeah, it was really good. Um, he he came on quite late into the picture because we were looking for a place to mix for so long. And we were like, it was one of the sound posts was probably one of the hardest things to do because we had to stop kind of 
production, find more money, then come back mm. and and keep going with it. And so it took a really long time for you know some of the financing to come through to to pull that together. Um, but he was great. He has you know his own studio up in North Sydney um, that has like a giant mixed theater in it. And it was yeah, it was a really great experience just to go in there and and sit with him and be able to kind of make all those decisions between you know Jono, me, and him, and just kind of yeah just be able to to have the level of control and his experience to be able to like get in and just just elevate things that we probably couldn't have done without him. Mm. Did you find that much about the soundtrack changed in those sessions? Um with Peter? I think there was just things that we we had thought about and were in like from a really early stage in the script even that wouldn't necessarily um stick out in the decision making when you're mixing something that we just kept mm. being like oh wait no like we got to we got to add this or we got to bring this up. I think one of the big things was like very very consciously um the main character wearing thongs throughout it was yeah. was a sound that we really wanted. It was in the script. There was just something about like <laughs> summer Australia thongs, just the slapping sound of when he's walking around. I think there's something there's something very I didn't even I didn't actually notice it at the time, but now I remember it and you're right. And I think that's so do you remember the who who decided to make him wearing thongs? Was it like a, the costume designer? I guess it was in the script, and it was and, in the script. Yeah, and the sound of the thongs was in the script. Really, so it was something that was it was really early on, and something that like Jono and I were so excited about because we just thought it was really funny. And yeah. just like every new person that came into the sound team, just trying to describe to them what we wanted <laughs> and, and why we thought it was funny. Um, you, you know what? I think I think it does say a lot about him because it's kind of. A, noxious yeah like the sound of it happening it's leisurely he's in his own home he's the king of the castle yeah it says a lot there's um one of the most like kind of prominent times that i um recognize sound design in a film was um if you've seen um boyhood the richard linklater film yeah if you remember the um the alcoholic father in the, I think around the middle yeah, of the film. Yeah. And he's always walking around the house with a drink. Yeah. And they really emphasize the sound of ice clinking in his drink. Yeah. And it just makes him this threatening presence walking around. Another, uh, this sound designer that I interviewed on a previous episode, she said that she would always add um, foley of coins jingling in a pocket for bad guys. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, but that's such a beautiful, subtle um, thing. Were there any, like, the dog and the thongs, were there other sound elements that you wrote into the script? Um, yes. I think, yeah, I think the timer was maybe oh, in the yeah, script, but it's something timer. I think that we that, that came out more and more just through conversations with, with Jono and kind of, yeah, throwing things back and forth that we could amplify um, but yeah, they, they, those were things that, that were kind of the main sound things that I think were, were in it from a scripting stage mm. um, that I can think of. There might have been a few more. But, mm. but also, I mean, like when I was talking earlier about how we decided really early on that there was no um, kind of non-diegetic sound cues or anything like that. Yeah. There were, there was a thread of like moments that we kind of picked out through the film where, where it would become like a subjective sound moment. It was usually something right. when when Richard was really um, 
like at, at the most prominent moments where he could not express emotion. That, yeah. that was the, the thing that we kind of developed a, um, a, a kind of non-diegetic, much more um, subjective sound experience for. Yeah. Like when he was typing the letter to yep. his... I just really, I, I don't think, I don't think we've given away too many spoilers, have we? I don't think we've given away any. No, no, no. no. He's, yeah, that's a good moment and I'm going to leave it at no spoilers. <laughs> um, what, uh, one last question I had, which, uh, the bit of a throwaway, but just uh, blue skying. If you had made this film again with like- five million dollar budget and no constraints how do you think it would have looked differently um i think it probably i think just in how um how some of the other characters like just in terms of the division of screen time i think i would have gone mm. back and, and given um more time maybe to Paige and shanti's side of the story yeah um, because it, we were really limited in how we could kind of show their story happening concurrently to the story of the family. Mm. Um, and it was mostly a decision of, you know, just location. Cause we only had yeah. that location for, for a small amount of time, but yeah, I mean, that's one thing. I mean, there would probably be other areas and tendrils of story that I would kind of reach out into. Like it was just mostly the contained nature of it. Um, that, that, that was really the biggest consideration in terms of budget stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's probably the main thing, just how, um, just the scope of the story and where we could go. Well, I think that you you gave Paige and Shanti a huge amount of personality for the amount of time that they were able to be on screen. And it didn't at all feel like a financially constrained movie. It, Like I've said again, I think it's a real masterclass in indie filmmaking. Whenever people talk about like, single location movies being the solution, I kind of think, oh, that sounds really boring. But this just did it so perfectly. And um, yeah, I think it's a great lesson to any uh, in indie filmmakers who want to do a feature, but probably not um, probably not so much the going to afters to do it because afters is probably going to get pretty sick of people masters students making features yeah i don't know <laughs> don't know that it'll happen again <laughs> sorry sequin in the brick well you you got it in while you could yeah and um i i know a lot of people don't like this question but um is uh, do you know what's next for you or what's coming up um, so Jess and I have, Jess is my partner and, and one of the producers on the film. We have a production company and we've got two, um, other features in development, various oh, stages of development at the moment. And just hopefully, you know, we can kind of use the momentum of this coming out to get something else into production soon. Yeah. Amazing. I'm sure you will. Uh, once again, fabulous film. Thanks for chatting, Dane. No, thanks for having me. <laughs>